Today's scripture reading is John 16, verse 4b to 15. Please stand for the reading of God's word. I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning the sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I, do, I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the earth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father is, has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is God's word. Please get any image of me in skinny jeans and a t-shirt out of your minds so that we hear God's word. In a recent presentation on outreach, pastor and author Tim Keller said, evangelism has never been more important and never been more difficult. This statement resonates with me. Evangelism has never been more important in my lifetime. And yet I hesitate to share the gospel because it's never been more difficult. I hesitate because I'm self-centered. And I'm concerned about the reaction that I will get when I share the gospel. I'm hesitant because I'm inadequate. I can't convince people of the gospel. I can't change hearts. I'm hesitant because I waver at times in my confidence in the gospel itself because of all the voices around me that challenge its words and challenge its values. But this passage this morning spoke to me in each one of these areas. For we, for I have found, and hopefully any of you who feel like me can find the answer in the helper that Jesus promises. Let's pray. Father, your spirit is alive and active, sharper than a two-edged sword to cut between bone and marrow, to cut into our hearts and to cut into the hearts that we speak to. So Lord, your word is truth. Minister that truth to each of us precisely where we live this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
In the context of our passage, the disciples are reeling. Jesus had just told them that they would be persecuted, that they would be martyred. At the same time, he says, I won't be here to help you. I am going away. At that point, they never could have envisioned what God would do through their words. They never could have imagined that one day their gospel would fill the earth and that two and a half billion people would call themselves Christians. What Jesus told them in this passage provided precisely what they needed to launch that ministry. And we're going to see that they needed to overcome their self-centeredness. They needed to divine help to overcome their inadequacies. And they needed confidence in the truth of their message. See, the disciples' response to Jesus' words that night was expected. They were troubled in their spirits. They were sorrowful in their hearts. But they weren't sorrowful for what Jesus was going to go through. They felt sorry for themselves. They were wondering what's going to happen to us when Jesus is gone. And we can see this in Jesus' words to them. He says, now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you asks, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your hearts. See, they weren't asking Jesus about his future or his fate. They weren't asking about what was going to happen to Jesus' mission. They weren't wondering how could the kingdom of God spread without Jesus himself. No, they were wondering what's going to happen to them. They were looking inward. And Jesus' words are a very subtle rebuke meant to get them to look upward and outward. We might paraphrase it like this. You, you aren't interested in what my departure means to me or my ministry. You're, you're feeling sorry for yourselves. But instead of Jesus adding another layer of guilt on them. He offers them help. He promises the helper. So we read in verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. Jesus sends another helper. The word another means another of the same kind. He's saying, you think you're going to miss me. Well, you're going to help the same kind of helper. In actuality, you're not only going to have the help that I gave you, but you're going to actually receive more. See, Jesus gave them comfort, encouragement. He challenged them. He provided intimacy with God. He offered truth, hope, purpose. The Holy Spirit does the same thing. He brings that to us. If we look at the roles of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Father is like the architect who plans out life, who plans out creation, who plans out history. Jesus is the one who fulfills God's plan. He accomplishes it. 
but it's the Holy Spirit who takes what Jesus has done and makes it real in our lives. He works in our hearts. He works in our hearts in such a way to bring us such intimacy that we cry out, Abba, Father. He works in a way to give us the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience. He empowers us to live the Christian life. And he helps us bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. The disciples were inwardly focused because without Jesus, they were going to be empty. Because Jesus was the one filling the holes in their lives. And whenever we are empty, we're going to look out for ourselves first to see how we could fill those holes. If I'm thirsty, I'm going to be looking for water for myself. But if my thirst has been quenched and you give me water, I'm going to be looking for who I could take that water to. We are transformed from being self-centered and inward-focused to outward when the helper fills us with the truth of the gospel that gives us comfort, encouragement, love, significance, security. And so Jesus is offering that to them. And that will allow them to look upward and to look outward. Jesus ministers to our self-centeredness, helps us get beyond ourselves. The Spirit does that, and then the Spirit is going to be our divine helper to overcome our inadequacies. You know, it must have been difficult for the disciples to grasp Jesus' words, it's to your advantage that I go away. What could be better than having Jesus with us? We all would long to have Jesus by our side. And yet Jesus says, no, there's something greater you're going to have. We feel that if only Jesus was here, I'd be confident, I'd be bold, people would believe what I say, and yet they didn't when Jesus was here. The crowd itself cried out about Jesus, crucify him. After he had died, resurrected, and ascended, there were only 120 believers in the upper room waiting and praying. And yet, when the Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost, Peter gets up, preaching in Jerusalem, under the shadow of the cross, where Jesus had just been humiliated as a blasphemer and a charlatan, and put to death for his teaching, Peter gets up and says, you crucified him the one God sent, and 3,000 people believed. The Holy Spirit did what the very presence of Jesus had not done. Jesus is giving them the helper. Conversions depend upon the Holy Spirit, not upon my adequacy or yours. And that's because of the ministry the Holy Spirit does in this world.
verse 8. When he, the helper, comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness in judgment. The Holy Spirit will convict the world. Now, this doesn't mean that every person will feel a, such a weight of conviction that they come to faith. It means that the Holy Spirit confronts the world with the moral categories that we naturally resist, sin, righteousness, and judgment. We all have a difficulty believing we are sinners. Psychologists say we have defense mechanisms so we don't have to face our faults, and we would say our sins. We all think we're more righteous than we actually are. And many of us don't really believe that a loving God would judge us. It's the, I can't, I can't help people to realize those things, but the Holy Spirit can and does. He ministers to us precisely the three things we need to know to accept Christ as Savior. See, to believe in Jesus Christ means to accept him as our Savior. But we're not going to accept him as a Savior if we don't feel we need a Savior. If I don't believe I, I sin or this, my sin is, matters to God, then I don't need a Savior. If I believe that, well, maybe I sin some, but... You know, I'm ultimately righteous and my righteous deeds will can make up and, uh, for my sins and earn my way to heaven. If I believe that, I, I don't need a savior. If I believe I've sinned and yet I, I fall short in righteousness, I can't earn uh, my salvation, but there is no judgment, I don't need a savior. And most people believe one or more of those things. I can't change him, but the Holy Spirit can. And he says, concerning sin, they do be, the Holy Spirit convicts us concerning sin because they do not believe in me. See, Jesus brought us a clear and new understanding of sin. The type of understanding that truly confronts each one of us. See, many of us think of sin as the outward acts and that there's the really bad sins like murder and theft and perhaps in some people's minds adultery. But Jesus said, murder is sin. But that anger in your heart that produces murder, bitterness, is sin. Yes, adultery is sin, but the lust in our hearts that simply seeks someone outside of our own spouses is sin. Oh, yes, lying is sin, but any deception where we're trying to manipulate people and get our way is sin. Jesus brought home the truth about sin, that it's all about who we live our lives for. Do we put Christ on the God or Christ on the throne of our lives, or do we put ourselves on the thrones of our lives? The Holy Spirit helps us to see these things, because 
People didn't believe Jesus' perspective on sin. He continues, verse 10. The Holy Spirit convicts concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you'll no longer see me. me. You know, most of us do believe we're righteous, that we're good people, we're kind people. Certainly we all have some flaws, but then again, nobody's perfect. And so we look at the people around us and we compare ourselves to usually the worst of us. We compare ourselves to others and we think of the goodness in, in, our, in ourselves and we think, well, we're probably in the top 10% of righteous and good people. And I imagine 90% of people believe they're in the top 10%. And so we feel, I've passed the test for sure. Certainly God will let me in. We're like the tax collector who was praying next to the Pharisee. He says, thank you, God, that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or this tax collector. Notice who he's comparing himself to. But what if he said he looked at Jesus? Could he say, thank you, Lord, you didn't make me like this sinner, Jesus? When we compare ourselves to him, we realize how unrighteous we are. And Jesus says, I go to the Father. I'm no longer here. And so people don't have Jesus living in front of them to compare themselves to him. And so the Holy Spirit comes and does that for him and for us. So it's, it's possible to believe we're sinners and we're not righteous, we don't measure up and still believe God's not going to really judge me. And so Jesus says, the Holy Spirit will convict concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Now I, if I was Jesus I probably would have said, the Holy Spirit's going to convict you of Judgment because God is holy and just, which is true. But instead, he says it's because the, the uh, ruler of this world, Satan, is being judged. And I'm thinking, perhaps he says that because if anyone should be judged, we'd probably all agree it would be Satan. The... Satan, the adversary of God, the father of lies, the instigator of sin that brought all the brokenness in our world, all the suffering and hurt, all instigated by Satan. Surely he deserves to be judged. But what about those who are following in his footsteps, living in his darkness? What about the religious leaders who unjustly had Jesus sentenced to death or Pilate who knew he was innocent and still condemned him to the cross or the crowd that cried out crucify him were they not carrying out Satan's plan don't they deserve judgment 
don't we, if we align our plan with his, our lives with his, his darkness. In John 3.19, it says, This is judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. You see, we live in Satan's darkness when we reject or ignore the light of Jesus Christ, the truth of his words, his call to be his disciples, his provisions for our sins. We're blind to how many of Satan's lies we've bought into. If we deny the fact that God judges sin, we've bought into Satan's lie in the Garden of Eden at the very inception of history. When after Eve says, if we eat of this tree, God says we will surely die. And Satan is the one who convinces her, you will surely not die. God will not judge you. If you believe that truth is relative and that we all have our own truth, we all, uh, society can set up the system of morality, you've bought into science, to Satan's lie. Again, in the garden. For he said to Eve, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What he said there is, Eve, people, you possessed the moral ground for your own lives. You know good and evil outside and apart from God. It's Satan's lie we bought into. If we believe we can worship any religion, we've bought into Satan's lie. For Paul says, when you sacrifice to idols, you're sacrificing to demons. If you believe, if you believe in a legalistic, moralistic, religious system that earns your way to God, you've bought into Satan's lie. Paul calls that doctrines of demons. We're oblivious to this. And we think we're innocent because we're oblivious. Judgment does come on us if we are apart from Christ. It's a difficult message to share. It's a message that people have a hard time receiving and we have a hard time saying. We need to share it, but it's not our responsibility to drive it home. That's the Holy Spirit's responsibility. We have other responsibilities. Even though the Holy Spirit is going to do the work, we have a responsibility as we see in Colossians chapter 4, 3 through 6, where Paul says, Pray also for us 
that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, to make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person's questions. Notice that, what's highlighted here in, in gold. And it's all gold. Pray. Pray for people to come to Jesus Christ. Pray for open doors. Don't be crashing through closed doors, but pray for those open doors and be looking for them and take advantage of them. Make the gospel clear. Walk in wisdom. Walk in the way we should as Christians. Let our speech be gracious. When we share the gospel, presented in the glory and beauty of for what it is. Let our speak with grace, seasoned with salt, and then individualize the gospel's presentation. Sometimes God will lead you to share with a stranger. More often, it's with somebody we know. Let's find out what really motivates them in life and show how the gospel connects with that. You know, we at Westgate offer opportunities to pray. Hopefully we're all praying for our neighbors and friends. We have a monthly meeting tonight at 6.30 where we come and pray just for the mission, just for people to come to know Christ, just for the ministries of Westgate Church to be reaching out to the people around us. And we have and we will continue to help train people in the skills that this passage mentions. Our passage presents three encouragements to us. One, it helps us get outside of our selfishness. Two, it shows that we have the helper to go before us. And three, it offers us the confidence that the gospel we share is truly God's word. Jesus makes that promise in verse 13. He says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He'll not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. You see, there's a cacophony of voices around us that can erode our confidence. There are direct challenges from those who mock the Bible as an antiquated book written by men filled with errors. There's indirect challenges from those who vilify certain biblical values as unloving and harmful to society. We need our confidence restored and this promise of the spirit of truth can do that. This passage guarantees the divine authority of the New Testament. Earlier, Jesus told his disciples that the Holy Spirit would teach them all things and bring to remembrance all that he had said. So what we have in the Gospels are what Jesus said and what he did. 
the Holy Spirit brought that remembrance to those apostles, even if they wrote 20, 30 years later. Now, this promise goes a step beyond. He will enable the apostles to know all truth. He will guide them into all truth. And so they have the understanding of the, the Spirit of God as they write all Scripture, and apostles like Paul as well have this promise that the Spirit's guiding what they're writing, that it is true. The next verse doubles down on this. As Jesus says, He will glorify me, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. What he's saying here is what the Spirit gives you is my words. And my words are the Father's words. So we have a triple stamp of affirmation that the word we have, the gospel we have, is the word of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That should give us confidence to boldly preach the gospel. The gospel will conflict with people's other truths. But the question is, what's the source of your truth? Is it yourself? Is it the current flow of culture? Or is it God, the creator himself? Jesus said it well. Build your life on my words, and you build your life on a rock. Build it on anything else, and you build it on sand. I hesitate to share the gospel because I'm self-centered. But the helper comes to fill my needs so I don't have to be looking out for myself. And I can now look upward and outward. I hesitate to share the gospel because I'm inadequate. But the Holy Spirit is not inadequate. And he goes with me when I share the word. I hesitate to share the gospel because sometimes I waver in its truthfulness. I need not waver. It's the voice of God. gospel has never been more important to share. It's never been more difficult. Well, maybe it was more difficult in Jerusalem the days after Jesus was crucified. But 3,000 people believed. Maybe it's more difficult in those closed nations where people are being persecuted and martyred today and millions are coming to Jesus Christ. We have that same spirit. Let's pray. Our Father, drive home these truths in my heart for I preach them today and I will be bold, but if I don't have them tomorrow, I will not be. Preach them to me today, and I will be looking outward.
But if I don't let the Spirit minister the truths of Jesus Christ and the gospel to my heart, tomorrow I will be inward. Father, minister the gospel to us that we might proclaim it to the world around us. Amen.